Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 40. Today I'm joined with Dr. Michael Gunderson, Associate Director and Associate Professor at Purdue University's Center for Food and Agricultural Business. Dr. Gunderson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I always ask this question when I get started here with any any guest. Uh, give me a little background on yourself and, and uh, kind of where you come from and how you ended up where you're at. Sure, I grew up in... Uh... Northwest Illinois, Freeport, Illinois area. My brother still is a dairy farmer there and uh, did undergrad at the University of Illinois and went college so much I never wanted to leave. So uh, stayed and got a master's at Cornell and a PhD at Purdue. Spent six years at the University of Florida teaching and doing research down there before came back to Purdue about five years ago to be a part of the Center for Food and Agricultural Business. All right. So here we are, a couple years of uh, a pretty stagnant growth and guys have looked at their balance sheets for that past couple of years and haven't seen a lot of growth of, of any kind kind of headed their way. So how do you think that is going to affect the end of the year? And then how do you think those decision-making processes are going to continue into 2018? All right. So, you know, as you mentioned, the stagnant growth probably means uh, low margins, maybe not a lot of uh, profitability the last couple of years. And if uh, Producers have had negative profits. They might have burned through some working capital that uh, they had built up in the good years. So, um, you know, as I look towards the end, probably um, going to carefully think about any uh, applications of fertilizer in the fall. Um, you know, might, uh, if they've got good soil quality and the uh, nutrient levels are high, probably going to pass on some applications there in the fall. Also, probably assess their equipment. Uh, fleet and think about, um, you know, are we, are we set for equipment? So just with the lean cash times, probably evaluate every purchase a little more carefully um, and come back where they can. Well, customers now are, are looking strategically at how they're going to spend their capital. How do you think like soil sampling and grid sampling are going to be <clears throat> a part of that moving forward into 2018? Is, is technology still going to play a, a big role moving forward, or are they, are they going to try to get by with what they got until things kind of become more robust? Yeah, I think – so that's a, that's a really important consideration. So, um, you know, we have quite a few younger producers out there who are pretty well-educated. They're pretty – tech savvy and they're going to try and leverage those technologies to gain a competitive advantage. So, you know, those folks that um, use those kinds of technologies, the soil mapping and uh, precision ag, they're going to be able to save, you know, at the margin um, dollars on the acre. And so that'll just help with their profitability. Um, you know, some older producers, they might be more uh, comfortable with the decisions they've already made and they might, uh, just want to um, cut back on that technology if they don't see the benefits there. So, but you know, if they've been managing the same pieces of ground for uh, 30 years, they probably uh, know the lay of the land well enough that they don't, uh, the benefits of that technology might not be as big for them. So, um, you know, and I think particularly for our larger producers, if they're trying to manage um, a few thousand acres, um, the benefits of that technology get spread out over a greater number of acres. The the cost of it starts to go down pretty quick. Cost per acre starts to go down pretty quickly. Right. So I've spent some time in in Six Sigma over my career here. And, you know, when things are good, people it's hard for people to put processes in place that are going to quote you know 
tighten up the belt a little bit. And most processes that get put into place are the ones very reactionary to to what's going on. So do you think that maybe with, with the way things are and the way guys have been doing things for the past couple of years, that there could be some a peak in the technology end of it? Uh, maybe some guys are going to try something different to, to maybe... Right, yeah. So, I mean, I definitely think um, typically producers think about cost cutting first and... Um, it's my colleague's fault that 100 years ago we started doing budgeting on a per acre basis. And so guys often, producers often think about cutting costs per acre, but oftentimes some really careful, thoughtful investments can help reduce the cost per bushel, um, even if it adds to the cost per acre. So if we can get a yield bump um, based on a, a smart investment, um, that might be a, a wise decision. So, you know, this, this go around in terms of cutting back, um, I think uh, a few years ago, people were thinking you couldn't grow a corn crop for less than 450 a bushel. And I think the experience that we've had uh, proves that's wrong. I think producers are out there growing um, closer to $3 a bushel and making a little bit of money in these lean times. And so it's the producers that uh, didn't pay attention as the prices came back down that uh, the markets are going to punish them. Let's take a look back now at 2017. So 2017, what do you think some lessons that were learned in 2017 that guys are going to look back on and say, you know what, I did that wrong or I did that right? Right. Um, the thing that um, leaps to mind for me is just how many folks appear to be surprised by the corn yields this year. So, you know, early on, weather wasn't particularly great, uh, particularly in Indiana, we got behind in terms of planting folks thought the yields weren't going to be there. Um, we had the USDA report in August that was really optimistic and folks thought it was way too optimistic. And then by the time we got to harvest, um, it actually was pretty close to being right on. So I think folks are surprised at um, how the yields came through and, you know, people are trying to identify exactly what that was. Is it seed genetics or just uh, improved crop management, soil management, um, or is a combination of all those things. So I think, you know, producers uh, are going to continue to look at um, the seed and the technologies that's in seed and think carefully about uh, what's right for their acre rather than just adopting every trait and technology that they possibly can. Yeah. That's the one thing that I found this year that, that really stood out to me was I think hybrids have really come kind of full circle now and, with the ability for us to produce the amount of corn that we produce and the amount of soybeans that we produce based on, I mean, I've heard guys talk about how good the growing conditions were in, in the corn belt, but every report that I read, it was either too wet or too dry. It was, right. it was hot at the wrong time. And like everything that could have been wrong was kind of wrong, depending on where you're at. I mean, granted, there were some, there were some spots where conditions were awesome, but we were still able to really produce a pretty heavy crop, in, in not the most ideal growing conditions. So when I look at, at you know, the various technologies and seed and, and the hybrids that are out there, that's really kind of come a long ways, I think, even in the, in the past five years. I, I fully agree with that assessment. I think uh, we've done really good work in terms of the scientific uh, innovation to get the most out of every corn seed, so and every soybean seed for that matter. So, um but yeah, I think uh, I think producers are. I think that's going to influence producers' decisions come spring if they haven't already bought seed. Um, thinking about that.
Okay. You know, the other thing, and you had mentioned about looking back at 2017, I think the other thing uh, producers need to think about on the marketing side is, you know, locking in a good margin on your crop. So knowing well what your cost per bushel is and knowing what kind of margin you can be comfortable with. And when the futures price gets to that margin, you need to lock it in. So um, I just, the I think a lot of producers may be, thought the market was going to rebound uh, more than it did. And so they waited and waited to lock in prices. And um, so I think maybe that's a lesson. If you've got the technology where the corn crops are going to be more stable and at a level that uh, is above usage, then uh, it's not going to make as much sense to wait for prices to climb. Yeah. It's, uh, I have Chip Nollinger on here a lot quite from uh, Blue Ear Fagum Market, and that, that's his pitch all the time is you know have a plan know what your plan is know what your numbers are so you know where you're at and then you know move forward on that when you when you make when you hit that point that uh, to move forward so right um right so let's talk about world demand and uh, world supply so you know i'm from i'm from kansas i live out here in nebraska now but i'm from kansas and you know so the wheat wheat harvest is always a kind of a big thing to me and, and it always uh something i grew up around seeing happen around me um every spring and you know every fall guys out planting so you know right now the u.s produced less wheat this year than they did the year before but yet the price of wheat still falls so world uh <laughs> world supply is obviously high you know that's a, that's a pretty indicator of that so um we start looking at overall world demand and you know the third world countries that are becoming um second and first world countries um you know, where do you kind of see the supply and demand curve going, and 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 when do you really see that kind of that cross kind of happening to where we're going to get some leveling out of of uh, of prices? I don't necessarily want seven dollar corn uh, to come back, although it was awesome when it was here, but <laughs> that, that creates a whole other set of problems. But you know that that five dollar corn, five fifty corn would be awesome. So, how do you see the world supply kind of working out and, and world demand kind of coming together over the next two three years? Right. And I, you know, I, my brother, dairy farming brother, he doesn't really, uh, enjoy when corn prices get too high. He's got to run that through the cows and try and figure out a way for it to be profitable. So like you said, you know, sort of a bit of a double-edged sword on climbing, uh, commodity prices, but you know, um, uh, the, the Kool-Aid out there amongst the agribusiness community and we're just as guilty as of it as anybody is, uh, we got to feed 9 billion people. Um, and, and that's true. Obviously, the population projections are pretty um, robust in terms of uh, the ability to forecast. But I think the bigger story that you hit on is uh, purchasing power and the ability to acquire a diet that uh, is beyond subsistence. And so, you know, moving away from staples like rice and potatoes and, and wheat and uh, adding proteins to the diet really is going to influence the demand in the future. And in order to be able to do that, these countries have to have a level of per capita income that allows the consumers to be able to make those choices. So, um, and that's certainly less certain than the population growth. We can figure out how many uh, children women have and we can figure out the death rate and sort of know where population is going to be. It's a lot harder to understand how these economies are going to grow and what that means for demand. But, um, you know, in general, I think, uh, if I could forecast a shock, it wouldn't be a shock. So for the most part, I think we see 
um, demand levels being fairly consistent and uh, fairly predictable. And um, unless we see uh, a huge shift in in diets or uh, additional demand for uh, ethanol or something, um, not too optimistic we're going to see a big increase over uh, current supply levels. Do you think the Chinese ethanol mandate in 2020 will have a major effect on the U.S. corn economy? Well, um, well there's, certain, there's certainly a big user of uh, a corn, right? And so whether it's U.S. corn or somebody else's corn, it's going to impact the price. And, um, you know, probably the thing to be careful about there is uh, I think China also is trying to be a leader in terms of uh, elect- electric cars and electric power and you know to the extent that stuff replaces the the gasoline powered engines um the long run demand might not be a very uh, rosy picture right. i wouldn't wear that i guess i didn't realize they were trying to be as centered on electricity as as they were my understanding was they were building coal plants as fast as they could build them right and you know i think um it's in the big city, so Beijing, where they deal with a lot of smog, they're trying to look for anything that would help them deal with that. And so right now, if you want a license, at least the way I understand it, if you want a license plate in Beijing, you have to wait in line for a very long period of time, maybe a year or two. But if you buy an electric car, you get it right away. Hmm. And so they are trying to influence consumers' choices about, uh, about how they power their transportation. Do you ever think China will, will be able to support its, I mean, I know they have a ton of people. There are a billion people, billion plus people, but will they ever be able to support their own, you know, ability to raise crops uh, to where they're not so export heavy on, on getting stuff or import heavy on stuff from other countries? Right. So, right. So, I mean, I'm an, uh, I'm, I'm an ardent uh, free trade uh, economist. And I would say that that goal for China was never realistic and it wasn't, um, wasn't even wise for their economy. So they do so many things well and they have so many um, competitive advantages in other areas. I'm not entirely sure why they would want to try to compete with uh, the Corn Belt in terms of growing a low-cost crop. So, you know, obviously there are food security concerns and that's why the government there in China had sort of a goal to raise most of their own, but I think over time they've realized that uh, that's not long-run sustainable. And so we've seen them make investments on the continent of Africa to acquire land, and um, I think they're much more receptive to trade and understanding how that contributes to a growing middle class. And, um, you know, if you if you're get inland, there's not a whole lot of places um, right now that they're – making the most of the land. So there's still some yield gaps there and some opportunity, but even if they close the yield gaps, I don't think uh, they're going to stop importing anytime soon. Okay. What is the, uh, what's the overall effect for countries like Brazil, Argentina, you know, the countries in the black sea area that are, that are really kind of, they're still kind of struggling to become quote unquote first world countries, but, um, not so much Brazil and Argentina, but the countries like like right. Bahrain and those kind of places where Kazakhstan, those places where they can produce a, a really large amount of wheat. I think for I think for those countries, you know, even Brazil and Argentina, 
Um, their struggle isn't necessarily growing a crop at a competitive price relative to U.S. producers. It's getting it out to uh, the global markets without uh, corruption and transportation issues impeding that. So, um, you know, when uh, players along the value chain are on the take and you don't have the railroad or port infrastructure to access markets, that just um, – erases all the competitive advantage that their agricultural producers built into the system. So I think um, the most recent data I saw said growing a crop is about the same cost per bushel in Iowa as it is um, in the Cerrados in Brazil. But the challenge for Brazil is the transportation cost from there to Beijing is two or three times what it is from Des Moines to Beijing. So, um you know, really the question is, will they make the investments in infrastructure that it takes to get crops out to the markets? Can they eliminate the corruption um, that takes a part of that value? And for countries in Eastern Europe, you know, that's a similar story there where you're trying to um, feed the West and be the best breadbasket of Western Europe. If you can get your your crops there in a competitive manner, it's a whole lot easier to move it across the land than it is to get it across the ocean. So um, that's probably the bigger question mark long run for those economies. So maybe I pay attention to it more now than I have in the past, but this rise of organics seems to be uh, (laughs) popping up all over the place, whether it's organic wheat, which we got a guy right here in my neck of the woods that that does 2,500 acres of organic wheat and and alfalfa and all that stuff for dairies and what have you. But uh, is that more of a fad or is that something that's here to stay? Right. Um, And I'm very sincere when I say we should uh, grow crops in every way possible and everybody should explore uh, what works best for their farm. So if there's uh, some consumers out there that are willing to pay a premium for organic production, why would we not uh, as an industry consider meeting those expectations and capturing that additional value that we create. So, um, you know, it's easy to see sort of eye-popping growth rates when the denominator is pretty small. So organic can grow um, on a year-over-year basis pretty quickly, but still end up being a pretty small portion of the food supply. And so um, is it is it going to last? I think the good news for us is when I was growing up, we – complained all the time that nobody cared about the farmer and how we grew their food. And the joke was, if you asked a kid where milk came from, it was the supermarket and they didn't realize it was, you know, a cow. Now people care and all of a sudden we're like, no, 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 don't care. We don't want you to know about it. And I think, um, I think it's a good thing long run for the industry for consumers to care about their food, how it was produced, the impact that it has, um, broadly speaking. And I think the best producers are the ones that are willing to uh, meet those consumer expectations and deliver on the value they need. So um, I don't know for sure if organic or non-GMO or uh, local are going to be um, long-run sustainable, but I think as long as there's a segment of the population willing to pay for it, we're silly not to meet that expectation. That's the good part about being in a uh, in a free market like we're in. Just You find the niche and someone wants to pay you for it, Go and exploit it. Absolutely. I saw a tweet the other day. Somebody said, how can you walk into a grocery store and not love the free market? I mean, just look at the variety of stuff on the shelves and um, how it gets there at a pretty uh, cost-efficient manner. So, yeah, I agree. All right. So I'm a, I'm a farm equipment dealer, 
And when producers make money, I make money. That's usually how it works. So um, <laughs> when you look at 2018, what's your biggest concern for, for producers and as, a, as an ag equipment sales guy here? How do I align myself with that? With yeah, that? so um, and we just, I just had a, a master's student finish up this thesis, and we were looking at uh, depreciation on farm equipment. And the thing that's changed a lot since um, some other research that I've done about 10 years ago is just the technological sophistication that are on these pieces of equipment. So, you know, it's more than just the GPS and the yield monitors, but uh, all the sensing technology. Um, so I think uh, producers, as they look at their fleet, um, you know, are they getting the most out of it? Are they running it um, to maximize their productivity? I think sometimes uh, it's silly that we're the only industry where we invest uh, a large sum of money into an asset that we only use a few weeks a year. So are there some opportunities to um, to really improve that asset turnover of those pieces of equipment we acquired? That is one thing that when you sit down and talk to someone outside the industry and, and you talk to them about a combine, for example, you know, if they use that combine 10 or 12 weeks a year, that that's a lot, and yeah, yeah, you know, and there and you you've paid anywhere from depending on what it is, three hundred thousand to almost five hundred thousand dollars for it. You know, so it's it spends forty two weeks a year in the barn and and ten weeks a year out making your money. Right, and I I mean I I have to be careful because I'm a, I'm a professor, not a farmer, and I probably get uh, criticized for living up in the ivory tower. I certainly appreciate that uh, when harvest time comes, there's weather and other factors that influence the ability to, to run that equipment. So having the extra capacity probably makes some sense in order to get crops in or out of the ground. But, um, but uh, there might still be some opportunities at the margin to think about uh, how can we increase the throughput through our planters and our combines. I'll use my discussions I had earlier this spring that, you know, planter technology has come so far in the past three years that, it's almost like the the planning window doesn't really matter anymore. I mean, it matters, but it doesn't like it doesn't really matter because they can plant. They can go from zero to twenty five percent of the entire nation's crop planted in two days. You know, and right? Exactly. So if they really have the weather to get out and do what they need to do within, you know, seven days across the country, they can have that that crop planted. So, you know, it's just it's it's gone so technology has gotten set to be such a big part of of everything from from harvesting and planting that it's and even soil maintenance and everything else that's there that it's gotten to be uh it's very finite in in what you do and don't do now and the decisions that you make it's not broad based it's very you're looking at the minor details to just to tweak things here and there to to increase whatever you're trying to do so it's it's come a long ways in the last five years i couldn't agree more every every spring i watch um as the Indiana National Ag Statistics Office sends out their crop report every week. And, you know, sometimes we get a little bit behind the five-year average or whatever, and everybody starts to get worried. And then we have a period of nice weather, and that that plant, that cumulative percent plant, it just takes a huge jump. And like you say, I mean, in two days, we can get uh, quite a bit of acres covered. You know, and I, I mean, that's a, that's a, 
amazing advancement in technology. I think the general public doesn't realize. If you think about my grandfather who started farming uh, back in the 1960s, you had a, a tractor, a four-row planter, you maybe went a couple miles an hour over the field on a good day, maybe you get uh, 80 acres covered. Now, today, with the technology, it's pretty easy to cover a thousand acres in a day. And so um, just a real testament to the innovation and science of uh, farm equipment. I relate that back to a uh, John Deere Day video that we used to have playing here at the dealership. I, I don't even remember what tractor it was. I think it might have been a B. They were showing the automatic reset on the three-point. So you went through a dip, you know, and the, and the uh, three-point popped up, and then it came back down right where it was supposed to be at. And I just watched that video and, and see a guy sitting on a, what, 35 or 40-horsepower tractor with a six-foot-wide cultivator in the back thinking, this can't possibly get any better than this. I don't know. I don't know how else to make it better. You know, and... and here we are now with machines that drive themselves, and guys spend more time on Twitter, I think, during harvest than they do uh, than they do actually driving the tractor. So it's a uh, I, I agree. Ways. Why don't you give me a little little background on on the Center for Food and, and Agriculture business there at Purdue, and kind of what that is, and and what you guys are are trying to accomplish there? Sure. So um, at Purdue, we have two centers. One is the Center for Commercial Agriculture, and that's really focused on the agricultural producer who farms as a business and trying to improve profitability and think about things like financing and, and farm transition and succession planning and those kinds of things. And um, they do the farm barometer index, if you've seen that uh, coming out of Purdue. But uh, so they focus on the agricultural producer, which frees us up in the Center for Food and Agricultural Business to work with everybody else that works with producers. So our bread and butter is to work with those agribusiness companies that are supplying inputs to uh um, mostly row crop producers, but we certainly um, have been paying closer attention to the livestock uh, agribusinesses and helping them think about how do they improve their services and their product offerings to make their farmer customer more profitable. We've covered kind of the gambit here. We've, we've got a pretty good idea of, of who you are and what uh, the Center for Food and Agriculture Businesses at Purdue. So before we go, do you have any last comments that you want to throw out to, to the world here? Uh, no, I just uh, appreciate being on the podcast and uh, enjoyed the time this morning. Well, I appreciate that. So if guys want to follow you on any social media, where could they find you at? I, I am on Twitter. I think I'm uh, Doc Gundy on Twitter, so uh, that, uh, that'd be the place to find me. All right. And what's the website to find you at on uh, Purdue's website? Yep, we're uh, agribusiness.purdue.edu. And uh, we spell Purdue with a P-U instead of a P-E like the chicken guys. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Gunderson, I appreciate you being on the podcast and uh, look forward to speaking with you in the future. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. All right. You too. Thanks. That's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Michael Gunderson for being yep, a guest yep. on this episode. Remember, if you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC, or you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at Moving Iron Podcast.com. Moving Iron LLC has a website, MovingIronLLC.com. Here you can find information on the 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from Moving Iron Blog. Throughout the year, there'll be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Or if you shop Amazon, please use the Amazon click-through through the Moving Iron LLC website. It won't cost you anything, and you'll still have the same experience you're accustomed to while supporting the podcast. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud.
So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out.